This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Navy Federal. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's, member-only exclusive rates, and more. Visit NavyFederal.org slash manliness for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. What does it mean to live a good life? and How can we achieve that good life? These are questions the Greek philosopher Aristotle explored over 2,000 years ago in his Nicomachean Ethics. And my guest today argues that these insights Aristotle uncovered millennia ago are still pertinent to us in the 21st century. Her name is Edith Hall. She's a classicist and the author of the book, Aristotle's Way, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life. Today on the show, we discuss what Aristotle thought the good life was and how it's different from our modern conception of happiness. We then dig into how Aristotle believed the cultivation of virtue was a key part of living a flourishing life and why understanding your unique potential and purpose is also important. Edith then shares insights from Aristotle on how to handle misfortune and become a better decision maker, as well as the importance of relationships to human happiness. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Aristotle. Edith joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Edith Hall, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. So you are a professor of classics at King's College in London, and you just wrote a book. It's called Aristotle's Way, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life. So how did you first encounter Aristotle and what brought you to you know, write this book about how Aristotle, this you know, over 2,000-year-old philosopher, can still <laughs> have something to say to us here in the 21st century? Well, it's quite a personal story. I first encountered him as an undergraduate studying classics. I was lucky enough to be told to go off and read him. But I was very much looking at the time for you know classic sort of young adult problem of, of not really knowing what the meaning of life was and not feeling that I'd got any particular rules to live by. The, the backstory is that I was brought up in a very, very religious family. My father's an Anglican minister. He's still alive. That would be Episcopalian in the US. And about 13, I just completely stopped believing a word of it. I just could not get in touch with this very strong religious feelings I'd had until then. But this left a terrible void because I was always quite an analytical child. And I, and I, I started, I didn't know it, but confronting a lot of the, the major problems <laughs> in uh, ethical philosophy, like what's the point in doing a bit trying to be virtuous if you're not punished if you're not or uh, why not just pursue your own self-advantage given that you can't even prove that anybody else is sort of actually has any feelings you can't get into another person's consciousness and this left a terrible void until for about seven years and I, I had an unusually even for a teenager miserable young adult you know young adulthood trying different religions trying addictive substances, having too many boyfriends, you name it. And it wasn't until I actually opened a copy of the Nike McKean Ethics when I was about 20 that I realized that there was another way to go at life than religion. Okay. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. But before we get into that, talk a little bit about Aristotle, because he's an interesting philosopher. He's a student of Plato, but he was doing something, like, it's it's different from Plato. Like he talked about the same issues that Plato did, but he is also 
talked about other things as well. Well, he has a much, much wider uh, remit, much bigger interest in, in the world as a whole than Plato. Plato was not at all interested in, in what we call you know, the sciences, material science, physics, biology. Absolutely not. He was only interested in the broad remit of philosophy, which admittedly covers things like politics and aesthetics. But Aristotle was just as important in history of science as he is in the history of philosophy. And it's there is no area of human life that he didn't think was worth inquiring into. If you go to university, the foundation texts of many, many disciplines, not just philosophy, are, are in Aristotle. If you study political science in any, in any sense, you have to read his politics. If you study zoology, you have to read his history of animals and generation of animals. If you read um, any kind of literature, you have to read his poetics. If you read physics, you have to read his works on, on cosmology and, and astronomy. He's, he's, in a sense, a much more important general intellectual than Plato ever was. Having said that, going to Plato's academy for the 20 years of his life between 17 and 37 was undoubtedly what turned him into the thinker he was. I mean, he needed that rigorous training in argumentation you know, I'm not trying to minimize at all his debt to his great teacher, and he wouldn't want to either. So let's talk about his ethics, because this is the Nicomachean ethics, and he had some other works too on ethics. Basically, his his case of how you should live a good life. So what what was he trying to do with his ethics? Like, how did he define the good life? Okay, it's a very... Uh, sort of complicated system in, in one sense, in that it's a lot of interlocking concepts. It's really a matter of like a giant spider's web, wh- which little bit do you sort of go into to try to build up a picture? But it's also like a spider's web in that actually there is a real pattern underlying it. So he starts from the premise that man is humans, homo sapiens, he's very, very, very centred on what it is to be a human, is an animal. All right? We are all animals. And he was the first person ever to say that in world history, which is why Darwin liked him so much. So we're just animals, but we're advanced from animals in that we've got much greater things going on in our brains, like being able to think and rationalise and deliberate and indeed choose between good and evil and laugh and remember and recollect and predict this, all these things that we can do since the you know, cognitive revolution when we started standing up and talking in about 70,000 BCE. So you start with that. Then the next step is that there is no empirical reason whatsoever to think that there's any outside force interested in us, right? He wasn't actually an atheist, but he absolutely didn't believe that there was any God that was interested in how we behaved. He felt that was entirely resting on humans' shoulders, We got to make all all our own decisions. Practical religion did not help with ethics. He took God out of your moral life completely. So we're an advanced animal and we've got to take responsibility for our own actions. But the plus side of that is that we can actually study how to be happy, which is something that I think all humans desire, how to be happy with these advanced brains that distinguish from animals. But we can figure out how to be happy and then put that into action. And it's the results of that question, how can we 
work and behave and be and think and deliberate in order to maximise our chances of being happy, that constitutes the fundamental question of his ethics. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there, even now. So <laughs> so first off, let's talk about like, how did he define happiness? Because I think when people in the 21st century think happiness, they think, oh, I just feel great all the time. I'm smiling. I'm laughing. Is that what Aristotle was talking about when he's talking about happiness? Not at all. In fact, his happy man, though, he does like humor. He's all for humor and fun. His happy man might very rarely feel sort of ecstasy or transient joy or thrill or physical pleasure that unfortunately, I think, tends to get called happiness. You know, you can go for a happy meal or you can have a cocktail at happy hour or you have a happy birthday just one one day of your life because you're having fun. Aristotle didn't think that that was true happiness at all. True happiness is a lifetime's project. It's an activity. It's a commitment to trying to figure out ways of life and ways of treating other people that will bring the maximum, um, I prefer the word felicity, actually, which is the word that Latin scholars use to translate his word for happiness, eudaimonia. Felicity implies something much, much more sustainable and sustained, and also that needs to have some you know, work put into it. It's, 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 it's a way of life, not a transient state. The, uh, the translation that I always like was flourishing. Like that's like human flourishing. Yes, I, I, I think it works very well for some aspects of it. Um, but I don't think it actually is subjective enough. Flourishing, you could say somebody's flourishing looking at them from the outside quite objectively. You could say they're healthy, they're strong, they seem to be having fun, they've got enough money, they've got a purpose in life, they've got a successful career, right? You could say a family is flourishing because those basic things are happening. Felicity or eudaimonia to me gets more the sense that this is something that you experience inside your psychic and intellectual self. It is more subjective. It's more personal. You need to have the external flourishing in order to maximally feel Aristotelian happiness. And we'll talk about that later with issues like bad luck and so on. But I prefer felicity or contentedness with not content, that that implies full satisfaction. I prefer a a sense of, you know what, it's the image to me of being able to look yourself in the mirror every night and think, I did all right. It's a sort of sense of satisfaction with with your own performance as a human. Okay, so, okay, Felicity, that's what we're going for. That's what he's going for. But to understand what Felicity is, we have to go back to what you said earlier. Aristotle said you have to understand that, one, we are animals, but two, we are humans. So like his whole idea is like, okay, to figure out what it means to have felicity as a human being, yeah. we got to figure out, okay, what does that look like? So there's like a, I guess that's what's called Aristotelian teology. Is that what it is? Teleology, yes. Teleology, yes. <laughs> your telos is your end, which doesn't just mean the sort of temporal point at which you end and you die. It means the purpose, as I always say, uh, why are you on the planet? Why are you here? What is the reason? What What it is that that you can do for the rest of the human race. And he is very, very outward looking. You can only achieve this form of happiness in interaction with your fellow humans, both those very close to you in your family and your very close friends, but also fellow citizens and indeed fellow world citizens. 
So it, it's it's something that is interactive and community minded. It's not like some Eastern religions sense of a, a serenity you can achieve on your own on the top of a mountain contemplating nature. You know, it's in interaction with other people. So how did he figure out the telos of a human? Like it was just observation that he made that, okay, this guy looks like he's got felicity. He's happy. <laughs> so let's see, like, what is he doing that's making him happy? Okay. Well, he, uh, you're the telos of all humans. We've all got a broad DNA inherited species telos. I mean, living a life that is reasonably free of, of misery, of hunger, of need, and full of, of good relationships and gratifying um, interchanges. We've all got that together. However, each one of us has a different package of potentialities. It's very closely linked to his idea of your potential. Your t- t- you know, achieving your telos means also fulfilling your, your potential that you're born with. And everybody is different. And although some talents do seem to run in families, he's incredibly clear that every individual's got a different set of things that they're good at. And you will never be fully happy if you don't identify what it is that you're good at and work on that to become the very, very best possible version of yourself. So if you are born with the talent to be an excellent gardener, if somebody makes you have a career as a chartered accountant, you won't ever achieve your full potential because you could have been a fabulous gardener. The good thing about this, though, is he says that there is quite an easy way to spot this in in children. It means being incredibly careful with the way we raise and educate our young and helping them identify their potential. That's because what people are good at is almost invariably also the thing that gives them the most pleasure. Right. A child who hates maths will never, ever be really good at maths. <laughs> a child who really doesn't like uh, babies will probably never be a really good parent. A child who loves cooking and loves cooking and food more than anything else really has to be sent to chef school, not to become a violinist and so on. And he's very sad about the waste of human potential, both in parts of the world where people are so poor that they can only live subsistence lives, which means they can't develop their real human potential beyond supplying their basic physical needs and those of their dependents. But also in in developed worlds where people try to force the young into moulds that their potential, you know, to to apply a telos that is not actually the one that is naturally there. And I, I personally think by far the most important function of education is to help people identify what it is they're good at through pleasure. In Britain, we've got a very great problem with the fact that the national curriculum has cutting out things like music and drama and cookery and learning uh, musical instruments and painting and all these creative things uh, in favour of the core STEM subjects, sort of maths and, and, and English and, and science, which means that vast numbers of people's potential is never getting discovered which I think is contributing to sort of mass depression. No, that's happening in the United States as well. Yeah. So, okay, there's a, there's a general human telos that we all share because we're all human. Yeah. Then there's like an individual telos for everyone. Like there's a, there's, we all have potential to do something. And in order to figure that out, we have to be kind of self-aware and experiment when we're young and find that thing that brings us pleasure. Yeah. But then another part of Aristotle's ethics 
is on living the good life. Is that okay? You, you figure out what your telos is. Yeah. But then in order to achieve that, you need to exercise or practice virtue. Now that word in the 21st century <laughs> is kind of loaded. What did, what did, what did Aristotle mean by virtue? He means trying to do the right thing. I, I prefer that as a, as, a, as a modern English translation. In all circumstances, try to do the right thing, which would be the one that would be most sort of ethically and morally applauded because it's best for you and for all of those around you. There is general virtue, which is the sort of whole caboodle of doing the right thing. But then he very helpfully, actually in another book, uh, both in the Nicomachean Ethics, but actually in more detail in his Eudemian Ethics, he actually gives you a sort of questionnaire where you can go through all the human qualities he can think of, all the human characteristics and attributes, and tick off what ones you think you're quite good at already, and tick off all the ones that you know need working on. Now, you have to do this with extreme honesty, or it won't work. If you're in denial about any of your faults, then his recipe for getting to be happy by being a good person and trying to do the right thing by others and yourself all the time won't work. So it, it, it requires an extraordinary amount of honesty, and it also requires commitment of time. I mean, you actually have to be very analytical about yourself and commit to taking your decisions very, very self-consciously you know, weighing up why you're doing them and, and what the different consequences are both for yourself and other people. So it's not, not an easy route, but in my experience, it is a highly effective one. And he actually gets into like, he lays out specific virtues as sort of examples. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the one, the virtues that he highlights? Okay. So there's whole ranges of them. There's courage or lack of it. There's your attitude to money. Yeah. There's kindness there's politeness, there's generosity, there's self-control with, with physical desires, anger or mildness it's, or, or whatever the opposite would be, apathy. He thinks it's apathy. Revenge, how, how, do you, how, how much do you, is your life spent actually trying to get even with people, affection for your children? You know, th th there's a whole list of about 20 basic human qualities which haven't to be honest, changed at all. I mean, they're still highly relevant to human life today. And he offers you this questionnaire, which uh, when I first did it, it was, it was. I, I really did try because I was in a very bad place. I was, I was trying things very seriously. You know, I, I'd, I'd had a very, very bad early adulthood, and um, I discovered, I think, pretty clearly what my own worst faults were, as well as helping to identify my potential because I, I, I realised there were things I was good at. I was good at making people laugh. I was good at uh, feel-good factor. You know, I've, I'm good at cheering people up and I have communication skills. So it's good to identify the ones you think are going okay already, right? I don't suffer from the opposite of those like extreme shyness or muddled thinking or being a gloomy person who depresses everybody if you have to work in the same office at them, right? But I do have many, many faults. And <laughs> for me, the worst ones are uh, actually wild emotional extremes. Like a very passionate person and had to learn highly precipitate. That is, I rush into decisions. I'm very impetuous. I love 
risks. As a young person, I was actually quite addicted to risk-taking, unnecessary and selfish risk-taking. And in particular, I'm highly vindictive. I've had struggled all my life with desire to get uh, revenge, which is a happiness wrecker if ever there was one. And by being very honest with myself about those, I have very definitely improved <laughs> my own happiness. Now, everybody's bunch of good qualities and bad qualities will be different, right? Uh, the trick is to be highly honest with yourself. And you do need to have got a little bit of living under your belt before you can do that. I don't think I could have done that at 14. And the other thing, interesting thing about Aristotle's idea of virtue, it's, it's, it's you know, what the right thing to do is going to be different in every situation. Like, you know, be a, a courageous act is in one situation might be courageous, another situation it might be too timid, and another situation <laughs> it might be reckless. Context is everything. And this is why uh, some philosophers call him a moral particularist. That, that, that is a phrase that's used of him because it's the, the particulars of each situation that uh, throw into relief what the right thing is to do. There's a philosopher called Immanuel Kant who came from exactly the opposite direction, which is that you can actually discover universal laws of human behaviour, which you can sort of categorically apply. And Aristotle said, really, this is very, very rare. We've always got to start with the individual circumstances. He doesn't see every virtue as simply having an opposite vice. That is, it's not a binary structure. There's not anger on the one hand, which is bad, which for most Christians there would be, and then there's mildness and gentleness and kindness on the other. That is not how Aristotle goes at it. It's a triple system. It's a triad where the right amount of anger is in the middle, the virtuous anger, and it's got two corresponding vices of either uh, deficiency, not enough, or excess. And this is because we are animals. We have got strong feelings and instincts and drives and desires. So, if you take anger, he says, not having enough means you cannot be an effective moral agent. You will not look after your, your dependents. If somebody bullies your child, you will not get into the headmaster's office to find out what's going on. If somebody crashes into your car and breaks your legs, you will not take them to court to get proper restitution and public acknowledgement of the damage that has been done to you. So, not anger is actually a real fault. On the other hand, of course, excessive anger, which means anger all the time or with the wrong people, so taking it out on your children if your boss is being a jerk, or uncontrollable or anger that never subsides or can't be dealt with, that is obviously a vice. And we all know people with too much anger, just as we all know people who are apathetic. So the right amount of anger, if channeled properly, is what gets you off your but when injustice has been done to you or your dependents to seek acknowledgement and correction of it, it's not in itself a bad thing at all. Now, for somebody passionate like me, I found this far more helpful than just being told that feeling angry was wrong. Far more helpful. And the same goes for all the other ones. Did he have like any things where like he said like you you should never do? It's like, okay. There's like no right way to murder or, you know, there's no right way. It's like, is, there, is there a spectrum of murder or a spectrum of adultery or a spectrum of stealing in Aristotle? Or is his ethics more about, more, more I don't know, no, it's not like a, no. it's about just how to be a, a flirt, like a, live your whole human potential. There's practically no categories around the edge that, that are absolute. So murder is an emotive term. If we take, say, take someone else's life, 
for Aristotle, if somebody else is going to take the life of your child, if you don't take their life, then you clearly take their life, right? Lying. He's wonderful about lying. Instead of the truth being just a transcendent thing out there, he develops, he thinks that uh, the default position should be truth-telling because that means that you're an authentic person who's consistent with yourself, right? So there's only one truth about yourself. So it's a good idea. Also, people who really love you can't help you if you feed them false information. And I very much tried to knock this into my own children's head that I can't help them if I don't have the full picture. So it is always to be rewarded to tell me the truth, however troublesome that truth. We can do more with it. But there are times when you absolutely have to lie. And bringing children up and telling them at three or five, punishing them for lying is the incorrect response. What you need to do is sit them down and talk to them about when it's okay to lie. And that is when someone is trying to damage you, right? If somebody says, get into my car, and you say, no, I can't because my mother's just around the corner when you know she isn't, that is fine. That is absolutely fine. You have to train children to learn when you lie for self-preservation and for uh, the good of yourselves, your loved ones and your community, and when you don't. And it's actually far too simplistic just to say truth, good, fiction, bad. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Well, it's summertime. You know what that means. Time to enjoy the weather, spend some more time at the pool, at the beach. Been doing that with my kiddos, doing a lot of swimming. But you should feel comfortable while you're swimming, and Saks Underwear has a solution for you. They've got the Cannonball Swim. So we're big fans of Saks Underwear. They're big supporters here of the Art of Manliness podcast, and they got a new swim short that has their patented ballpark pouch in it. So you get some support. Everything stays separate down there. No more chafing with the sand, the salt water, the sunscreen that can happen at the beach. The shorts, they got quick dry pockets, so they dry fast. They're odor resistant, and the shorts look great. The colors don't fade. They're really comfortable. Check them out. Saks' Cannonball Swim. I know you're going to like these. If you want to try them out, got a special offer for our podcast listeners. Go to saksunderwear.com. Use promo code AOM at checkout. You're going to get $5 off and free shipping your first purchase when you use that promo code AOM. So head over to saxonderwear.com, pick up a pair of Cannonball Swim shorts, use promo code AOM at checkout, and you're going to save $5 off and get free shipping. So one more time, Sax Underwear, that's S-A-X-X, underwear.com, promo code AOM. Go check it out today. Also by MSX by Michael Strahan, available exclusively at JCPenney. And Michael Strahan, former defensive end, now talk show host. He's got a line of clothing called MSX. It's athletic inspired functional pieces designed for guys who are always on the go. MSX by Michael Strahan was created to be versatile from working out, playing golf, or just relaxing. MSX has you covered. MSX by Michael Strahan is athletic inspired with functional pieces, including basics like pants, shorts, shirts, sweatshirts, and outwear, and is available in big and tall sizes and boy sizes too. They also have features like no chafe seams, UV protection, quick dry stretch technology, and more. Performance enhanced designs are built to go everywhere you go. If you'd like to check this out, head over. Well, first you can go to JCPenney nearby you. So heck out, check out MSX by Michael Strahan. It's available exclusively at JCPenney. So you can visit a store near you or go to jcp.com. And I'm sure you can find it there. Explore Michael's lifestyle content as well on michaelstrahan.com. One more time, MSX by Michael Strahan, JCPenney, jcp.com. Check out his content at michaelstrahan.com. And now back to the show. Well, that's going going back to Kant. You know, there's. I remember when I took ethics in college. They always give that example of, okay, you are in Nazi Germany and you are hiding Jews, and the Nazis appear asking, are there any? Are you hiding any Jews? And the Kant, <laughs> Kant would say, yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> uh, because you're supposed to tell the truth. And maybe you give the, you know, the Jewish people you're hiding a head start. 
Uh, but Aristotle would say, no, there's no one here. That, that's actually the right thing to do in that situation. Of course it is. I mean, and, and, and that is a, a very extreme examples are good because they, they get us in touch right. with our common sense. But we're not most of us living under Nazi Germany and things may not be as clear as that. But I gave a couple of examples in the book of when uh, I, I have very deliberately lied for the, actually it was for the good of my children in, in, in a particular bureaucratic setting. And I would do it again every single time because my intentions were good. And the, the idea of intention as the litmus test of all moral action is very, very, very important to Aristotle. So he's much more interested in why someone did something which might appear on the surface or by stereotypical moral thinking to be culpable. He's much more interested in asking not about the results, but the intention. So if you believe that you're killing someone to save your child, if you genuinely believe that, even if it turns out that they weren't, you know, that you were mistaken, that doesn't take away from the fact that you made that right decision, right? You might you might suffer all kinds of remorse and problems if you discover you've made that mistake, but you will know deep inside that you were trying to be a good person and that will comfort you. So, so how does Aristotle think we figure this stuff out? Like, how do you, how does he say, how do you figure out what the right thing to do in these different situations you'll be placed in? So, uh, that's where deliberation comes in. And, and I, I, I think I love you the way you're doing this interview because you, you know this is a complicated jigsaw. It, right. does, it does all fit together, but there are also about 20 really important separate pieces. So the concept of deliberation, and we hardly use that word deliberation in our society, which just shows how unimportant it is to us. The founding fathers in America did use it in various of their documents about, you know, councils and and democratic parliaments and places for deliberation, for bringing about the possibilities of the the pursuit of happiness. You you do have it in your culture, but it tends to get forgotten. It's a particular word in Greek called, it's the verb is bouluesthai, which is, comes from the same root as the Greek word even today for a parliament the modern Greek, Vuli, and he's thought it through, just as Aristotle always does. He says, we can think about the science of decision-making, just as we can think about the science of happiness or the science of virtue or the science of fulfilling potential. And he comes up with a a sort of eight-point plan for making any decision. Now, of course, if you're just trying to decide whether to have a peanut butter cookie or a chocolate chip cookie, you don't bring in this entire apparatus of eight points every time. But if, for example, you're trying to decide whether to leave the European Union as a nation, right, or leave your husband, then you certainly do. And if you don't bring in the full apparatus of aids, I mean, they're aids to making the right decision, then you're jeopardising your chance of the best outcome and therefore happiness. The whole chapter of the book, as you know, is, is, is... how to make a decision, where I, I, I pull all this together from his different ethical work. So the very first thing, the very, very first thing is to verify all information. That sounds so simple, right? So am I going to leave my husband? Somebody's told me that he's been having an affair. Do I bother to find out whether that's true, right, before I kick off? Yes, of course I do. If I'm going to leave the European Union, do I bother to find out exactly 
how much money my nation is paying to Europe and how much we're getting in subsidies from it before I vote. Well, ideally, of course, but in fact, none of us did that in that decision. So just step number one means getting, you know, you may have to take a couple of days to put a lot of effort into verifying all information. And in a world run by spin doctors who have no respect for facts and the truth, this has got even more difficult. So yeah, verifying facts is a part of it. And, and as you, yeah. Yeah. And, and so go ahead. I can go through all eight, but that would take an it hour. It would take an itself. hour. But I, the, the, the point I, I wanted to get to, um, that, you know, this whole, this, this skill of yeah. making decisions, like that is a virtue in and of itself, according to Aristotle. Yeah. Right. I think being a good deliberator. Yeah. Yeah. I think that he, having a good deliberator. Yeah. Yeah. I think he calls it phronesis or practical wisdom. It's like, that's what allows you to figure yeah. out like, what is the right thing? Like how, what is it? What do you, what's the courageous thing to do in this instance? Yeah. Phronesis is the, thank you for saying that it's the cover word for, which is usually translated practical wisdom, which is for being able to figure out what's the right thing to do in all circumstances. It might be a, a big decision. It might simply be, you know, how you, if you're a teacher, deal with a difficult kid in the classroom very instantaneously. And it requires experience. That, 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 that's one of the, the problems is, is uh, that you can't just implant, a, you know, you can't load up a phrenesis hard drive into an 18-year-old's head. They have to figure out, partly through experience, how the world works. I could never have written this book as a younger woman, I've got, you know, I'm 60 years old. I got, um, I've been bereaved. I've been divorced. <laughs> I've raised children. I've been sacked. I've fallen out with friends. I've also had a fantastic career, many wonderful opportunities, lots of, you know, great things have happened to me. But I have been in a very many particular situations where I or others have had to take important decisions. And the practical wisdom, such as I've acquired, I'm by no means there, but all the examples in the book are real. I may have changed the names or the genders, you know, or, or, or tiny details, but they're all real dilemmas that I or my friends have faced. And through them, you develop a sense. And the really important point to bring in another term is that once you've done this enough, it starts to be a bit less of a conscious thing and more unconscious. It's like driving a car. You don't have gear sticks. We have gear sticks. And we always uh, use this metaphor. When you're first driving, you have to think, do I go up into second gear? Do I go up into third gear? You know, what gear do I take that bend in? After a year or two of driving, you never think about that anymore. And that's the sort of analogy I use. It becomes a hexis, a habit. You can actually ingrain virtuous action. Another example there is, is that I decided when I had children, because my parents had been very strict 1950s and 60s parents who didn't smile at me. They didn't smile when you went to ask them for help. So I, and I hated this. I was terrified of going to see them. And so I decided I was always going to smile at my children. And of course, the first few years, you're doing it deeply consciously, like they're coming and you're, you're fixing your face into this rictus. Hello, darling. What do you want? But in fact, it did become completely habitual to, to the extent that my children tease me about it. So that's another point to bring about Aristotle is, and I think you hit on it a little bit, is that he is very action-oriented, right? You have, yes. to, you, have to, you actually have to do this stuff to learn it. You can't just read about it or talk no, about it. 
it's a verb, not not a set of ideas. It's a do thing. You do happiness. Right. But but there's also this idea that uh, in Aristotle, he's also, but he's also, there. there is a role for contemplation in Aristotle's ethics. Like he doesn't completely disregard it, but he says it needs to, there needs to be a balance with praxis. Yes. So you both reflect and, and think about it. And if you're that way inclined, that it, it, it's, it absolutely fascinates you, then maybe that's what your telos is, is actually to be a philosopher and do it full time. And a small proportion of the population should be doing exactly that. But for most of us, it's a combination of just taking time to think, maybe reading some Aristotle or, or reading some guides to him because his texts are quite difficult and, and, and complicated and putting it into practical action. And then doing, you know, post-mortems on your action. How did that decision work out? You know, and you'll be able to learn from that practical experience. You'll have to add your practical wisdom. So it's, it's to me, you know, it's just advanced common sense. I think an awful lot of what I'm saying, people say, yes, but I do that anyway. <laughs> and Aristotle actually said there were people who were by nature just good people that they were sort of born able to do this. And they just sort of almost automatically took the right decisions and, or they were born in very happy families where they learnt by imitation without having to reflect on it very consciously, ways of behaviour that would maximise their achievement of their potential and therefore their happiness and, and good relationships. And we, we all see people like that out there. But for the vast majority of us, it it does require an awful lot more work and self-consciousness. Well, that, that raises an interesting point about the role of or luck or fate in, yeah. in, in the good life. So, you know, some people are just, they're born into a family that, you know, inculcates great uh, habits and, yeah. and virtues in, their, in their, their kids. But some, a lot of people aren't. And sometimes you people are born into poverty or cancer. They get cancer when they're, or their kid gets cancer. What does Aristotle say about that? Is it possible to have a good life even when you're you're faced with tragedy or setbacks in your life? Well, the answer is ultimately yes. But he, having said that, one of the things I found very refreshing about him as a highly cynical 20-year-old, very well aware of the terrible disadvantages that, that lots of people live under, in, in the world was that he was terribly honest about luck. He didn't like the word fate because fate implies that, because he did really believe in free will and, and your ability to control and, and take responsibility for your happiness. Fate implies something predestined and unshakable. But he did believe in just sheer random bad luck. And as, as you quite rightly say, you can actually, this affects the hand of cards you're born with, right? So you might be born very good looking or you might be born very ugly. You might be born very poor. You might be born into lots of money. You might be born with a, an extraordinary talent, you know, to be a, a world famous concert pianist. You might be born with very few obvious talents. So there's that. And then from day one, when you're actually on the planet, you're faced with possibility of terrible accident or illness or bereavement, or bankruptcy, or war, right? And that, that is just part of taking decisions. You've got to calibrate risk. You've got to figure out, if I'm going to leave my husband, you know, what will happen if I, if I get diagnosed with cancer in one week and I've taken the children with me, right? You have to think that through. You've got to put the possibility of bad luck 
into your thinking. If you then actually suffer from bad luck, he does think that even for the most appallingly unlucky people, his favourite example is Priam of Troy, who, of course, was king of a famously happy and prosperous nation with 50 sons who lost every single one of them in the Trojan War and lost his own life and all the women were enslaved. But Aristotle would actually said, had he survived, he could have just about got over that because if he knew that his own intentions had always been good, then he would at least be at peace with himself, right? He wouldn't be suffering from remorse and guilt and, and feeling dirty. And he would, if he worked hard enough on it, be able to get some kind of happiness back and live a, a reasonably fulfilled life. So that's actually very inspiring. He is very sanguine about death as well. And I spent spend the whole last chapter um, talking about, about that. He thinks we should all prepare ourselves for it and think quite hard about it because it will help us lead a better life. You know, whatever time we've actually got, if we're trying very hard to live well, then that will help us die well, make a proper will, look after our loved ones and the projects that will go on after our deaths. So there's n- it's no magic wand. He's not offering you immortality. He's not offering you any kind of immunity against getting a nasty disease. He himself died at 62, when in fact people who lived that long very often lived till 80 or 90 in ancient Greece. And he got cut off in his prime, probably of stomach cancer. But his will that he left shows the incredible thought he put in, both to looking after his family And he freed all his slaves, for example. And he also invested a lot of thought in how his lyceum, his university, was going to continue operating effectively. So he actually set his own example to us. He suffered some terrible bad luck in his own life. He was bereaved at the age of 13 of both his parents, but still managed to achieve what he was born with, which was the power, the dunamis, the potential to achieve his telos of being the greatest intellectual the world had ever seen. Oh, okay, well, let's think about, let's talk about our relationship with other humans because this is another part of Aristotle's ethics that you, a lot of times when people talk about philosophy or how to live a good life, it's very self-centered. It's like, how can I take care of myself? Like, it's just like, you know, how can I control my emotions? But Aristotle also thought about, no, in order to live a good life, you have to have relationships or friendships with other people. So talk about that a bit. Well, he actually regarded relationships as the most important aspects of human life. He was interested in the difference between animals and humans in our capacity to make very, very strong bonds with non-kin, for example, and our city building abilities, that is building large communities where there are people who we don't know personally, but who are our friends because they're our fellow citizens and our good depends on their good, right? So it's entirely relational, entirely relational. And he, he regarded his four or five very close friendships, including with his young colleague, younger colleague, Theophrastus, who was the inventor of botany, as the most important things in his life. But the trouble is they take a lot of work and investment. And the most important thing is trust. So whether it's with your wife, your best friend, your colleague at work, your fellow citizen, or even with the, the people in, in another country on another part of the world, trust is what 
is is absolutely indispensable to a good relationship and the good relationship is indispensable to happiness. Misery only ever results from breaking trust. That's actually one reason. When I said that there were no categorical imperatives in his thinking, he actually says adultery, which is very strange for an ancient Greek male who had many opportunities to commit adultery and wasn't really blamed for it, right? He, he was free to have sex outside the house. He hates adultery. And the reason he hates it is not because you're sort of cheating on someone in, in the sense that we see it, but because the primary relationship, which is you know your life partner, the person that you have sex with, is the building block of all of society for him. Society starts with that partnership, right? And then there are more partnerships in the household. If you compromise that partnership by breaking trust, he says, basically, the foundations of your whole civilization are placed on crumbling stones. Now, that really appeals to me as an intellectual argument. <laughs> and I, I, I personally found it very helpful. <laughs> if you go and sleep with someone else, you're not just cheating on your husband. You're actually taking out a foundation stone of, a, a, you know, in my sense, my, my case, an ex a family, an extended family and a community of people who will all be affected by it because the trust has gone. So you're going to affect happiness by far more than just one person. And I've thought about this one very, very hard. He does say that one slip doesn't matter. And I do wonder whether he didn't just once slip, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that he's committed to the principle of absolute honesty and trust and fidelity to his woman. Did, did Aristotle have any tips on like how to how to pick uh, a good uh, spouse or how to pick good friends. Yes, he well he had several very 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 good friends who were other philosophers mostly, especially Theophrastus. Theophrastus was seventeen years younger than him, but he trained him, and he, he, Theophrastus took over the Lyceum from him when Aristotle died. That he married at the age of thirty seven a princess of a philosopher king in in a Greek city in what's now Turkey. He married his daughter, and it seems to have been a huge love match, but unfortunately she died very quickly, probably in childbirth, leaving him a daughter who he adored. And after that, he made a relationship but didn't marry, and we don't know why. It could possibly have been that she was married to someone else and left him, or it could be that she was of slave status. But from his old hometown, he married what seems to have been a childhood sweetheart and called Herpilis, and he had his son, Nicomachus, with her, who he recognised as fully legitimate and who he dedicated his greatest work on ethics to. And what's very moving for me is that in his will, he takes very, very special care of this woman, even though she wasn't his actual wife. And he says she's to choose her own house, either his old mother's, mother's old house in southern Greece or his father's old house in northern Greece. And... She is to choose her own internal decor, he says, because she has been good to me. And I find this incredibly touching because he, he used as his executor the most powerful man in Greece at the time, the Macedonian ruler of Greece. He was meant business. You know, his will was going to be in force. Nobody was going to muck around with it. But he actually puts in that, my woman does not want generals choosing her furniture please would you you know she had said to him aristotle please can you just put that clause in your will and he did how, how great is that 
No, it is great. I mean, so I imagine Aristotle would say, you know, find somebody that like helps you live a good life. Is that? I mean, is that what it is, or is it just love, or what? What would what would he say? You you have to sit down and decide what you want to do with your life with them. And, and so many couples don't do this. They don't even ask each other whether they both want children before they get hitched. You know, these basic, basic things where they want to live, what professions they want to pursue, you know, what are their main goals in life? And he's got absolutely clear that, that the mutual goals, especially with it comes to raising progeny or uh, whatever it is you want to contribute, are far more important than the transient pleasures of, of, of say, sexual attraction as, as young people. So I mean, his advice would be long conversations. And if your goals don't match, then it's not going to work. That, that, that's like advice you get from a 21st century relationship therapist. Of course, obviously. <laughs> but I, I find it because I'm, I'm a university teacher, so I'm dealing all the time with people quite apart from my own children who are now young adults, but I'm dealing all the time professionally with 18 to 25-year-olds, sort of undergraduates and doctoral students. And I am appalled by the bases on which they enter long-term relationships sometimes. (laughs) But they have to learn through their own mistakes. Right. They got to develop that for nieces. Yeah. Uh, So another part too about relationships is that Aristotle thought in order to live a flourishing life that you you had to be active, an active participant in your community. You have to be. Uh, it's a little bit strong. The difference is that many ancient philosophies like Epicureanism and the Cynic school and up to a point Platonism suggested withdrawing completely from the affairs of, of the city. Aristotle, I think if somebody said they actually really wanted to live quite a quiet life as a, as a farmer up in the hills, that's fine. But what he didn't like was the idea that being a civic person or running a business or getting into politics or being an actor, that that, that, that any of these was actually sort of tawdry or likely to coarsen you, which is the position of a lot of other ancient philosophers that you should try and, and sort of somehow remove yourself from society. He saw, you know, the human arena of the city-state, politics, education, business, all of that as the place where you go in and exercise your virtues and you make your relationships and you jolly well contribute to the community if you've got something to offer. Yeah, that's what it's interesting about the virtues that you talk about. In order to exercise them, it requires other people. Yes. Oftentimes. Absolutely. He even discusses that with some humor, actually, in terms of sort of finances. Like, we only need money because we've got to have a sort of abstract way of dealing with each other <laughs> over surfaces. If you know a man living alone on a mountain doesn't even need money. Money is not inherently an evil. It's a matter of how we deal with it between each other. No, yeah, I mean like anger. Like you, it's whenever you get angry, it's with with other people. Typically, yeah. you don't get angry at cows who you know get in the way or whatever because it's a cow it doesn't know what it's doing. Well, let's talk about like the, the the role of emotions in Aristotle's philosophy. So you, you mentioned the Stoics; they're all about okay, you know, whatever happens to you, it it it's, it upsets you because you want it because you, you say it upsets you. Aristotle it sounds like would say no, emotions are a part of our our nature as human beings because we're animals. the 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 trick is is just learning how to manage them and you know exercising them those emotions in the right way. Oh, no, yes, it is, but 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 not even. <laughs> You know, the more the more he's very sanguine about, about friendship. He says the more you invest, if you invest 30, 40 years in a really wonderful, trusting friendship, 
with someone, when you die, you lose it. You both lose it. This is incredibly painful. And he's, he's completely clear and, and denying the pain of that, which a stoic would do and say that a proper masculine man doesn't show any pain when he loses a friend because the cosmos is, you know, dictated by fate and all the rest of it. He, he would actually laugh at that, I think something is really, really worth having, then it's going to hurt losing it. Well, well, Edith, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Well, I have a personal website, which is www.art, and then it's Edith Hall, all one word, Edith Hall with two H's in the middle, .co.uk. And all my information about my books, publications, public lectures, uh, broadcasting, bits on YouTube, that kind of thing are available there. Well, fantastic. Edith Hall, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Edith Hall. She's the author of the book, Aristotle's Way. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about her work at her website, edithhall.co.uk. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Aristotle, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about philosophy, this Aristotle topic interested you, but as well as practical things about physical fitness, personal finance, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to hear ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code MANLINESS. You'll get a free month of Stitcher Premium. Once you sign up at stitcherpremium.com, just download the Stitcher your app for iOS or Android, and you start enjoying ad-free Art of Manliness episodes. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs> <laughs>